Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today I'm going to cover 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-13, through 13, the entire chapter. I'm going to call it Timothy's Encouraging Report. Our context is this. In chapter 2, Paul has relayed to the Thessalonians his view of his relationship with the Thessalonians. He's encouraged them. He's empathized with the persecution about the Jewish legalists who are persecuting them. And he expresses his longing to see them again, which is a theme that will carry over into chapter 3. So let's start now with 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. What's the therefore, therefore in verse 1? Therefore probably refers to 1 Thessalonians 2.18, which says, So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Therefore, when we can no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens and send Timothy up there to find out what's going on with you. We wanted to come to you, but we couldn't do it. So therefore, we sent Timothy up to you. Now, that we right here in verse 1, when we could no longer stand it, has engendered a lot of debate as to who Paul's referring to. So I'm going to give you some options. The simplest option is is that Paul is referring to himself alone because he says we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens and we could no longer stand it. And that stand it means stand not having any knowledge of the Thessalonians. And so he's talking about himself personally. He's just using the editorial we. Now John Gill and uh, Albert Barnes prefer that solution let me read you what Gill says. He seems to have been alone at Athens, at least at last. He, considering everything, thought it most fit and advisable when at Athens, where he waited for Silas and Timothy, having ordered them to come to him from Berea, either to send orders to Berea for Timothy to go from thence to Thessalonica to know the state of affairs there, and Silas to send elsewhere, or if they came to him to Athens, of which Luke gives no account, he immediately dispatched Timothy to Thessalonica and Silas to some other part of Macedonia. Far from thence they came to him at Corinth. Now, it's real hard to keep track with all of the movements of these three apostles, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They were together at Philippi, then they were together at Thessalonica, and after that they split up. And Gil gives a possible solution. What I just read is very hard to follow unless you break it down. So I'm going to go through these options as who's, who the we stands for, and that might give you some options as to what these three itineraries were. Now, if the we stands for I, when I can no longer stand it, that view is backed up by Paul's use of the singular I in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. For this reason, when I could, I could no longer stand it, I also sent him, Timothy, to find out about your faith. So he uses I there and we in verse 1. So that makes me tend to think that he's using the editorial we. But that's not necessarily true because it could be that the we could refer to Paul and Silas who are in Athens. Again, Luke doesn't say where Silas and Timothy are, but they could be. They could be. In, they could have remained behind in Berea, or they could have come on down to Athens at some time. We don't know, but it could refer to Paul and Silas could no longer stand not knowing about the Thessalonians, so Paul and Silas thought uh, they would stay behind in Athens and send Timothy up to Thessalonica to find out. Now, that John Gill suggests that as an option, even though he doesn't agree with it. Or it could refer to Paul and Silas and Timothy, all three of them, in Berea, not in Athens. In other words, when Paul and Silas and Timothy could no longer stand it, 
Paul and Silas and Timothy, while they were in Berea, thought it was better for Paul to be left alone in Athens. Let me read you Jameson Fawcett and Brown's suggestion. Quote, the we favors Alford's view that the determination to send Timothy was formed during the hasty consultation of Paul, Silas, and Timothy previous to his departure from Berea. They were run out of town in Berea. They were persecuted. And that he with them resolved to be left alone at Athens when he should arrive there. Timothy and Silas not accompanying him, but remaining at Berea. Thus the I will express the act, the act of sending Timothy when he arrived at Athens was Paul's. While the determination that Paul should be left alone at Athens was that of the brethren as well as himself, the brethren being Paul and Silas, at Berea. Well, so, in other words, the three, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, made the determination in Berea, not in Athens, in Berea, that Paul would be left alone in Athens, with the intention that Timothy and Silas would come later. We read in Acts 17, 14 through 15, Then their brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. This is at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come, him in, to, come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. Now, whether Silas and Timothy actually came to Paul at Berea is not stated. Some people say that Timothy came on down to Berea. Paul then sends him up from, excuse me, Silas and Timothy came down to Athens, not Berea, and then Paul sent Timothy up from Athens to Thessalonica. Or some people say that perhaps Paul, that Timothy stayed in Berea, and then Paul sent a message to Timothy in Berea and said, and said go on up to Thessalonica, check on them, then come down and meet me later here in Athens or in Corinth, wherever I am. At any rate, it's all very complicated. James and Fawcett Brown say that Silas didn't come as first intended, didn't come back to Paul at Athens, but Timothy did, after which he was dispatched by Paul to go to Thessalonica. Again, that's probably what happened, although he could have, Timothy could have gotten a message from Paul while Timothy was still at Berea to go on up. At any rate, it's extremely difficult, so let's just assume, just for the sake of simplicity, that Paul is saying, therefore, when I, when he says we, but he means it's the editorial we, he's saying I, when I could no longer stand it, I thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and then he sent Timothy on up, to Thessalonica to check on the situation in Thessalonica, and that's because Timothy had come on down from Berea, met Paul, not recorded anywhere in the gospel, we just assume it, or not anywhere in Acts, I should say, we just assume it, and then Paul sent Timothy on up to Macedonia. Now, Paul calls Timothy our brother. Well, before I get into that, let me let me give you a, a rationale for why Paul is so intent on sending Timothy and so intent on explaining to the Thessalonians that he had sent Timothy. He is concerned that the Thessalonians are misinterpreting his long absence from Thessalonica. As it turns out, it took him somewhere between four and five years to get back to Thessalonica after he had been run out of town at night when the mob attacked Jason's house, if you recall the story in Acts 17, and he hadn't had a chance to come back yet. And he's trying to say, look, I tried to get back. Satan hindered me. I'm sending Timothy instead of me. I'm, I'm still concerned about you, and this is why I'm sending Timothy. Let me read you a quote to that effect from Albert Barnes. This chapter, 1 Thessalonians 3, is a continuation of the course of thought pursued in the previous chapter and seems des designed to meet the same state of feeling existing in Thessalonica and the same objection which some there urged against the apostle. The objection seems to have been that he had really no attachment for them and no regard for their welfare, that he had fled from them on the slightest danger, and that when the danger was past, he had not returned, 
but it left them to bear their afflictions alone. It reminds me of that old song by the animals, Oh God, please don't let me be misunderstood. Everything Paul did seems like people jumped on him and twisted his motives. And notice he sent Timothy back. That was a great personal inconvenience to him, as Barnes points out, because Timothy was one of Paul's trusted co-workers. Now, Paul remained at Athens alone for a time. If you recall from Acts 17, Paul had been driven from persecution from Thessalonica. That's when the Jews got jealous because Paul and Silas and Timothy had a lot of converts, a lot of Jews believed, a lot of God-fearers believed, leading women of the city believed. So they dragged him before they dragged the apostles before the city magistrates, but they couldn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy. They had been staying at Jason's house, so they the mob went to Jason's house to try to find Paul and Silas and Timothy, who fortunately weren't there. And so they dragged Jason before the city authorities and had a big riot. And so then at that night, Paul, Silas, and Timothy head out of town and head for Berea. Now, and then after while they were at Berea, after more persecution, the other apostles put Paul either on a boat or by land, we don't know, and sent him out to Athens alone while they stayed behind in Berea. We read in Acts 17:15, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. We don't know who these escorts were. And after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, that's from Berea, they departed. Now, it doesn't say that Paul, that Silas and Timothy actually came to Paul at Athens. We just have to assume that they did. We can assume that they did. The commentator Grant says, it's evident that Timothy had come from Berea to Athens. It's not so clear that Silas had come. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. The non-mention of Silas at Athens implies that he did not follow Paul to Athens as was at first intended, but Timothy did. Well, where does it say that Timothy arrived at Athens? Well, it doesn't really say that. It just says Paul sent Timothy. And it sounds like when Paul is sending Timothy, he's sending Timothy from Athens where Paul was to be left alone. Although he could have sent Timothy by letter from Berea, as, we, as I've said. So apparently Silas didn't come on down. It's possible that Silas didn't come from Berea to Athens. It's possible that he did, as we've previously mentioned. Timothy, it's possible he didn't come either, but he probably did. So you see a lot of this is in the area of speculation. But at any rate, Paul sends Timothy somehow up to Thess- Thessalonica to find out what's going on up there. And if Timothy had come down from Berea to Thessalonica after he arrived, then Paul sent him on. Excuse me. After if Timothy had come down from Berea to Athens, then Timothy, then Paul immediately turned around and sent him back up to Thessalonica, leaving himself alone. Probably, it was bad to be left alone, but it would be better to find out what happened to the Thessalonians. Now, wherever Timothy and Silas are in this period after the persecution of Berea, and as I say, it's controversial. We know that they came back and rejoined Paul at Corinth. We do know that because of Acts 18.5. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, wherever they were, Paul was occupied with preaching the message. All right, so, and this Acts 18.5 is at Corinth. So we know that Paul eventually got back together with Silas and Timothy after the separation at Berea. Now, Paul calls, calls Timothy. He sends Timothy up to Thessalonica. This is what Gill says about Timothy. Quote, he was a laborer and not a loiterer in the Lord's vineyard, one that labored in the word and doctrine, that studied to show himself a workman, that gave himself wholly to meditation, reading, exhortation, and doctrine, and preaching the word in season and out of season, and was a fellow laborer with him who labored more abundantly than any of the apostles. Gill, of course, is going through the scriptures and finding out references to Timothy and puts it in an eloquent paragraph. Timothy's, Timothy was Paul with Paul for a long, long time, from the first journey all the way to the prison, to the time that Paul was in prison at Rome. He calls him his son in the Lord. 
calls him a brother, calls him a son. Calls him a brother right here in verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul uses family terms to describe Timothy. Calls Timothy his son elsewhere. In 2 Timothy 1, 2, he says, To Timothy, my dearly loved son. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, he says to the Corinthians, This is why I have, I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful son in the Lord. That means Paul converted him, I'm sure. Timothy is also called here in verse 2. Let me read that again for you. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. God's co-worker. Ooh, he's working with God. Now, that's a, that's a strong statement that Paul is making about Timothy. He's God's co-worker. Jameson, Foss, and Brown say that some don't like that translation. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible there, and some people don't like that translation, God's co-worker, because it is so bold. Grant gives an alternate translation, Timotheus, our brother and fellow worker under God in the gospel of Christ which makes Timothy Paul's co-worker rather than God's co-worker. In other words, we'd read it like this. Instead of saying God's co-worker, we would say he is a co-worker of Paul who belongs to God. He's God's co-worker, but the, the possession belongs to God, but the co-working is with Paul. Well, I don't have a problem. I don't think it's too bold. Anybody that's working for God is working for God. is God's co-worker. God, it's just that the partnership is sort of tilted in favor of God as opposed to the lowly believer. But still, we can work together with God. Isn't that what we call sanctification, synergism, working together with God? Not in salvation, of course, but in ministry. Now, Paul adds in verse 3, he said he, said he wants Timothy to strengthen and encourage him, which, by the way, shows that this is what apostles do. And Timothy was an apostle, by the way. He's not just a pastor, as in the pastoral epistles. He was an apostle, Second Thessalonians 2, 6. We had the right as apostles to be a charge to be a charge on you, and the we, of course, is referring to Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who were associated at the together at the beginning of the epistle to the Thessalonians. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we had the right to be a charge on you as apostles. So they're apostles, and Paul sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage the Thessalonians concerning their faith. And what does this show? This shows that apostles not only start churches, they strengthen and encourage churches. Just as Paul and Barnabas did, or just as Paul did on the second journey, as he went back and strengthened the churches that he and Barnabas had started on the first journey. So Paul's, Timothy's an apostle sent to Thessalonica so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. They needed to be encouraged because they were being persecuted, the same persecutions that drove Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of town at night. So he sent Timothy back to encourage them. And then he says at the end of verse 3, For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, or ordained is a stronger word. Appointed is the same meaning. Now, that would be a great verse for Joel Osteen to preach one Sunday. We are appointed to persecutions. Folks, it has been ordained from the beginning of the world, that the church will be persecuted. There's no way around it scripturally. There's no way around it historically or factually. It happens. I mean, just today I read in the paper that Samaritan's Purse should take their hospital out of New York City's central park where they, at their own expense, not at New York City's expense, or the state of New York's expense, or the federal government's expense, at the expense of Christian money, they sent their portable hospital unit up there in Central Park and tried to help people who were afflicted with the COVID-19 pandemic. Now that the pandemic is eased off, that the head of the city council of New York City said that Franklin Graham was spewing hate and was a bigot and that he wished that Samaritan's Purse would leave New York City. Well, that's, that's gratitude for you, isn't it? And that's the way Christians will always be treated by morons 
by thick-headed, God-hating antichrist who don't understand anything except hate. And that's what's going to happen to Christians. And we, in America, we're not used to it. Well, it's happening. It's happening everywhere. Now, Paul tells them that they're appointed for persecution is to get them ready for it so they won't be disappointed when it happens. The Thessalonians were young converts, as John Gill says, and they weren't used to such persecutions. Now, Adam Clark, the Arminian Adam Clark, says that God appoints nothing of this kind, but he permits it, for he has made man a free agent. What, what part of appointed does Adam Clark, the Arminian, not understand? God appointed the persecution for the church. He appointed this COVID-19 virus. I saw somebody in you know, a Fox News article, a Christian woman writing and talking about how God, how God is going to help people through the pandemic and show all of which was good. But then she said, God didn't send this virus. I said, really? So it just happened. It kind of snuck up on him. huh? Oh, God's up there. Omniscient. I'm dipping. Oh, my goodness. What's happening down here? There's a there's a virus threatening the planet. God has his purpose with this damnable virus. I don't like the virus. And I'm sure the Thessalonians didn't like being persecuted. But folks, God ordains bad things in this world to bring about good things. And in the case of the Thessalonians, it would be perseverance, proven character, endurance, and so forth. You know, if Adam Clark and other Armenians are upset with God appointing persecutions for Paul and the Thessalonians, what about the fact that he appoints deliverance and growth in the faith for the Thessalonians? First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same word, appoint, or, or, or ordain. So... He might have appointed them to persecution from humans, but he did not appoint us to wrath from himself. God did not appoint us from wrath coming from God's throne room, but he appointed us to salvation. So if you're going to complain about God's appointing bad stuff, think about the good stuff he appoints, salvation. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, quote, None but a religion from God would have held out such a trying prospect to those who should embrace it and yet succeed in winning converts. That is an amazing thing, huh? Everywhere that Jesus went, he says, they're going to chase you from synagogue to synagogue. They're going to persecute you. They're going to kill you. What did he say after the resurrection? Peter said, what is it about John? Is, it, is John going to make it? Is he going to make it? I forgot the words exactly. And, and Jesus said, Peter, they're going to put you where you don't want to go, which referred to his being hung upside down and crucified. So some of them they will, they will kill, he tells in Matthew 23, I think it was. I mean, Jesus everywhere talked about the persecution that's coming on his disciples, and yet they still follow him because he also gave them good news along with the bad news. You're going to be resurrected. They can't kill your soul. You're going to live forever. Verse 4, in fact, when we were with you, Paul continues, we told you previously that we were going to suffer persecution, and you know it happened. So not only is Paul mentioning the persecution in his letter later on from Corinth, several months later from Corinth. He also mentioned it while he was still in Thessalonica establishing the church in Acts chapter 16. He told them, you're going to suffer persecution. And it happened, of course. We can read about that. It's Acts 17, actually. I'm sorry, not 16. Acts 17, 5. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. Jason was where the apostles were saying, staying, and they had a mob, and they went to the to the city officials, and it happened, just like Paul predicted. Oh, oh, it happened. Does that mean Paul brought it about because he told them that it might happen, and therefore he had a negative confession, and that which he confessed came upon him? Well, if you believe Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland and all these nitwitted faith message people, we can blame it on Paul because of his negative confession. 
1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Ooh, Paul's fearing? He's fearing that the devil had tempted them, the tempter, the devil had tried the Thessalonians and that the church might be busted up and Paul's labor in establishing it in the church might be for nothing. Paul fears that. Compare Paul to the faith message errorist. I had moron in my notes, but I erased it because I didn't want to be offensive. The faith message, not faith message morons, but faith message errorist who say that that which he feared came upon him. He didn't have a positive confession because he feared. And sure enough, the tempter came. Notice that Paul is talking in the singular now for this reason when I could no longer stand it, which makes me think that he's alone in Athens, not with Silas. I also sent him, that's Timothy, to find out about your faith. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 7. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love and reported that you always have good memories of us wanting to see us as that we also want to see you. Now, Timothy came back. Now, it doesn't say whether he came back to Paul while Paul was at Athens or after he left Athens, he went to Corinth and Timothy came back to Corinth. I'm going to assume that Timothy came back to Paul at Corinth because Paul was probably, according to the majority view and according to Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, Paul was writing the letter to the first Corinthians from Corinth. And we read in Acts 18.5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching the message. And this is in Corinth. So Paul and Silas and Timothy came back down it doesn't say they came together. It sounds like they came together, and we don't know where they came from exactly. As I said, as I previously mentioned, that's extremely controversial and subject to a lot of speculation. But at any rate, Timothy met Paul probably back at Corinth, and he brought good news about your faith and love and reported that you always have good memories of us. So they're not mad at Paul for not having come back to see them for so long. And that the Thessalonians wanted to see Paul, assuming that us is the editorial we, and he's talking about us, meaning Paul, singular, wanting to see us as we also want to see you. I mean, it could be plural. I mean, after all, Silas and Timothy are back together with Paul in Corinth as he writes this letter to the first Thessalonians. He could be referring to them too, wanting to see Paul. I don't, but to see the Thessalonians. I won't take a stand on that. Verse 7, therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you through your faith. Now, what distress and persecution is Paul talking about? There's two options. He could be talking about the persecutions and distress that he was suffering at Corinth as he wrote the letter. John Gill suggests this. So does Jameson Fawcett and Brown. We read in Acts 18, this is in Corinth. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, this is the Jews, he shook his robe and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Well, that's one possibility that Paul is referring to the distress and persecution. He could be referring to, and the our, our distress and persecution would be the distress that he, Silas, and Timothy suffered at Corinth. Or it could be our distress and persecution referring to the Thessalonians and Paul and Silas and Timothy. All together, we discovered distress and persecution where? In Thessalonica. I've already mentioned that persecution. The leading men of the city got upset because Paul and Silas and Timothy had converted so many people and so they start, they stirred up the merchants of the city. They had a big riot. I mean, they had a big crowd that started. They, they attacked Jason's house where the apostles were staying and dragged Jason before the magistrates. And in verse 10 of Acts 17, as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. 
So that could be what Paul is referring to. We're not really clear. There was so much persecution against the church. Almost everywhere they went, they were persecuted. So it's hard to nail it down. First Thessalonians 3, 8 through 10. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? As we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. For now we live, as John Gill says, quote, before they were dead men, lifeless, disconsolate, dispirited, carrying about with them the dying of the Lord Jesus and death working in them. And they, as it were, under the sentence of that, being killed all the day long for Christ's sake. But now, upon this news, in the midst of all their sore trials and troubles, their spirits revived, and they became alive and cheerful. Now, when he says, if you stand firm in the Lord, and I had to check this out in the Greek to be sure, this was not a a first or second class conditional, which means you assume for the sake of argument, positively or negatively. This is a third class, probably a third class conditional, which means that the range of possibility, there's a range of possibilities in there that uh, it didn't happen. It's either probably it didn't happen or possibly it didn't happen, and I think it's possibly. It's possibly might happen that you won't stand firm in the Lord. So Paul is holding out a, 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 a contingency there. You might, you guys might crumble under the persecution. Again, I point that out to all you faith message errorists out there who might say that Paul is making negative confessions. The faith mongers out there in Joel Osteen's church. Paul opened up a possibility that some negative things might happen. See, faith message people like Pollyanna. Oh, nothing's ever wrong. Everything's all right. There was a nuclear bomb that just blasted Washington, D.C., and that's because we were worried about North Korea. If we hadn't been so negative about North Korea, it wouldn't have happened. And that's all right. It'll save the cost of urban renewal. We've got to be positive. Can't be negative. Well, being positive is a good thing. But being realistic is nice, too. And Paul is being realistic. He realizes that persecution could have wiped his church out if you stand firm in the Lord. Then he says, how can we thank God? Here's one, the word thank is everywhere. I think I did a search on Paul's epistles. It was over. I think I got 35. Five or 36 instances of how he used thank, thanking about the people he was praying for. And here we have, how can we thank God for you? So he's thanking God for his converts, for the Christians that he's dealing with. First Thessalonians 1, 2, he says, We always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. He prayed for them, then he thanked for them. Now what Paul is doing here is using a wise procedure. He's praising the Thessalonians, and he's praised them plenty in these first three chapters. He's going to correct them at the end. In other words, he's going to give them the good news first and the bad news second. He's going to correct them at the end because of their confusion concerning the resurrection and certain eschatological points. That's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's helpful insight. I think that's exactly true. Notice that he says, we pray earnestly night and day to see you. He's again trying to disabuse the Thessalonians of any notion they might have that he doesn't want to come see them. Of course he wants to come see them. He's praying that he could come see them. So they should not misinterpret his long absence and think that he is indifferent to them. Notice that Paul is praying night and day to see the Thessalonians. Night and day. Now that could be just an expression he prays all the time. But it could be, if you take it literally, he prayed in the night. And sometimes he prayed in the daytime. Or both. Which could indicate that Paul didn't have a set prayer time for his prayer. There are some people, Christians that get sort of rigid about this. you got to pray at a certain time, like in the morning. I never pray in the morning because I... I'm fresh in the morning. I do my Bible study in the morning, and then in the afternoon I get out in the sunshine if it, if it's sunshining, so I can not be so pale-faced and Norwegian-looking. And I pray in the sun and shoot some water up in the air and cool off. Oh man, that's a great way to pray. But it's not in the morning. 
Because there's no sunshine in the morning. And I'm more awake in the in the morning when I need to be to do all this complicated Bible study. Anyway, that's just neither here nor there. I know that Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So again, he used that same expression talking with 2 Timothy. So you can pray night. You can pray in the morning. Paul says he's praying that he wants to see the Thessalonians and in order to complete what is lacking in their faith, in order to help them out, strengthen and encourage. Remember, apostles don't only start churches. They strengthen churches too. He wants to complete what is lacking in their faith. That faith could mean their Christian faith, to complete what is lacking in your Christian faith. Or it could be a, that's an objective use of the word faith. Or it could be a subjective use of the word faith. Their belief in Christ, he wants to strengthen their subjective trust in God. Either way, it doesn't matter. Obviously, he says something is lacking. That doesn't need, need, That's not a criticism. It's just a statement of fact. All of us lack a lot of stuff in our faith, and we need to be encouraged and strengthened in our weak areas. We go now to verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 3. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now, Paul's hope to see them had been deferred or actually was deferred since the time that the letter was written. The letter was written about 51 A.D., and he didn't get back there till on the way, on the tail end of the third journey as he left Corinth, going back to Macedonia, and then to Western Asia Minor to get some ships and to go back to Jerusalem to take the poor offering to Jerusalem. That was at the end of the third journey. That was about four, over four years, as the commentator Grant says, Jameson Fawcett Brown says it was about five years. That's about right, because First Thessalonians was written in 51 A.D., and they went back about 56 or so to Jerusalem. So it was a long time before he got there. He prayed. God didn't answer that prayer for five years. For all of you who like instantaneous prayers, like God's a genie in a bottle, who like to pray and disregard what God's will is, notice that Paul says, May God and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way. He didn't make his itinerary. God directed his itinerary. God made his itinerary. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. Notice that Paul equates God the Father and the Lord Jesus. That's a good verse for people who want to show the Trinity of the Bible, that God and that Jesus is God, because they're equated here. There's no distinction. God our Father and the Lord Jesus are doing the directing. And notice that the verb in the Greek is singular, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. Thus, that shows the essential unity of God the Father and God the Son. May God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He, did, he didn't say this. May God the Father and God the Son both direct your way, plural. Direct, plural. Because then that would sound like it was two gods, would it not? But he says God and Jesus direct, singular. Because God and Jesus together are one God. So that's interesting. Direct is singular. We go down to verses 12 and 13 of First Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll finish this chapter. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. Incre increase till you get to the top of the rim, to the brim, and then overflow the brim with love for one another and for everyone, not just for each other, not just for the, each other in the church, not just for fellow Christians, but for everyone, non-believers, unconverted too, including people who say that Franklin Graham is full of hate and bigotry. We, 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 we pray, and of course now Paul's praying this, that God would increase this sort of love. It doesn't happen naturally, and it doesn't happen without prayer. Paul's praying that way for the Thessalonians. And then he says in verse 13, May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Amen. Now, 
If you are like most people, you'll say, okay, at the coming of our Lord Jesus, that refers to Jesus coming back at the end of time. Grant says this, Gill says this, Clark says this. But i got a little problem about that because Paul is talking to the Thessalonians, and he says, may you make your hearts, your Thessalonians' heart, blameless in holiness, probably because of this persecution that they're going through, and he wants their, their hearts to overflow in love. He's talking to the Thessalonians about their spiritual state, and he wants their spiritual state to be blameless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Question, how can that refer to the end of time 2,000 plus years later after the Thessalonians? How can their hearts be made blameless at the coming of Jesus? Well, I don't know. So that makes me think that Paul is referring to the coming as in First, in Matthew 24, 1 through 3, Paul begin, Jesus begins the Olivet Discourse, and one of the and one of those four apostles that he's talking to says, "What will be the sign of your coming?" And of course, Paul is obviously ta- Jesus is obviously talking about the coming and destruction of the temple in Matthew 24, and I suspect that's what Paul's talking about here too, because the Thessalonians are not going to be alive 2,000 plus years later at the second coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Now, if that's true. The coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints didn't happen at Jerusalem, so you would have to translate saints as holy ones or angels, because that's what the word saints means. Either It's, it's ambiguous. It can either mean saints or angels. Jameson, well, Gill mentions the possibility that saints is angels, and Jameson Fawcett Brown says it's both saints and angels. Well, anyway, that just illustrates the ambiguity. So I just throw that out to you. I realize that's part of the Orthodox Preterist Futurist Controversy, which I don't have time to get into. I've done a long YouTube series on Orthodox Preterism if you're interested. But at any rate, we're finished with 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Thessalonians 3. And next audio, we will turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. In the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 4, the 12 verses we're going to look at in the next audio, Paul exhorts to personal holiness, which is easy. And that'll prepare us for the next audio after that one when Paul gets into eschatology, which is not easy. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this audio. Hope you stay tuned for the next one. See you next time.